Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Alan Aitken. Alan, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today, I'm joined by Alan Aitken. Alan, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure, Jake. We have a limited time frame here because we could touch on your time as a journalist with Sydney Morning Herald and the the South China Morning Post, as well as obviously Hong Kong Winning Factor, where you're a chief analyst and run the site there, as well as some of the, the consulting work you do, among other things. Tell us, you know, in a snapshot, some of the things you've done over the years that stand out and, and how you got started in, in those areas. Well, I guess most people know me, Jake, uh, as a, a journalist. I was a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald for uh, around about uh, 20 years, before that a little while at The Australian. And uh, in 2001, I, I moved to Hong Kong and uh, I was um, a racing writer on the South China Morning Post until a couple of years ago when I, I left. And I'm these days I'm a consultant and I have the Hong Kong winning factor uh, and analysis service, and uh, still do a few other bits and pieces around the place. So I'm, I'm a jack of all trades. You're a master of some. <laughs> so tell me where the, I guess, passion for all this came from. Were you a punter? Were you a, a form analyst who enjoyed the, the game of, of thinking about horses and horse racing and betting, or was there some other draw to the to the industry for you? Yeah, well, I have. I had no family background in a Jake. Um, my father was slightly horrified that I was going into racing, even in journalism, which he tolerated. But uh, it was, as much as anything, uh, my initial uh, interest in racing was about sport. I was a sport-mad kid, and uh, obviously sport on a Saturday afternoon was mixed in with the, the, the races being called on the radio. Uh, and later on, it became more of a fascination with the problem-solving uh, aspect of it. Um, I moved into journalism because it allowed me to work in racing, uh, and uh, I had a, uh, a little bit of talent for the written word, so I could combine the two. And uh, I had a, a good mentor, a couple of good mentors along the way, but one was a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald, Bill Wernicke. And uh, Bill was uh, a pretty good punter himself. And he impressed on me the, the need to understand uh, why horses win races. He said that uh, as a journalist, yes, you chase stories, but those stories are all linked to the winning and losing of races. So if you can understand uh, what goes together into uh, horse form and uh, how results turn out, the way they do, he said, you, it takes you a long way to uh, having some some authority when you write those stories. 
So let's end it all here. Did you figure out why horses win races? Uh, yeah, but unfortunately, it's it's <laughs> really murky. Um, once you get into the area of probability, and there are no certainties, um, that was the disappointing part when you come to those realizations. That uh, it's all uh, a matter of grades, shades of grey, uh, and uh, com- comparing um, assessed odds versus uh, actual available odds. Yeah, there was no. Um, there was no easy answer. It was a bit like studying Japanese. The more you study, the more difficult it gets. <laughs> so tell me back then what the culture was like in that space, being a journalist but having a mentor who impressed upon or impressed upon you the the need to understand essentially, you know, the betting aspect and probabilities and and who's going to win the race and why and those types of things. Was that something that was critical to journalism and racing and and knowing and understanding you know, the core component of betting? No, it wasn't critical to journalism, and it, and it still isn't. And that's what I think the point was that he was trying to make, that if you want to be an authoritative uh, journalist, it is much better if you do actually understand how everything fits together, and not only the analysis and the betting, but also the way that the tote work, the way that bookies work, uh, a deep understanding of... Um, uh, how races are run, some understanding of how horses are trained and ridden, and all of, all of those things. He, he said you would do well to be an expert, and Bill Bill was an expert and uh, a very good punter, and uh, he had a, a big effect on the way I approached um, journalism. For all of that, I was able to, I think, bring a little bit of my own um, personality and colour uh, to it, I had a column in the Sydney Morning Herald for a couple of years where uh, I was able to have a lot of freedom with the content, and I wrote uh, satirical work. I wrote to plays, songs, poems as part of that column, and, I, and I'm I don't really think I've seen anyone else uh, try that before or since. So, um, so there, so there were those aspects to it. Uh, a, a young, enthusiastic journalist who who'd been given a push in the direction of the form, uh, life couldn't be better uh, for a, a young man in the 1980s he's in uh, Sydney racing. It was uh, it was a great scene, very different to the way anyone would grow up in horse racing these days uh, with, with small crowds. Uh, the excitement uh, level is very different going to the races in Australia, I think, these days on uh, the major events. Uh, there is something of that in Hong Kong. You, you do get some of that back. Um, good crowds, enthusiastic, noisy crowds. Uh, so uh, I think I probably made the uh, the right move. But it gives me a, a chance to uh, compare the two places on a regular basis. Um, and um, that certainly occupied uh, a fair bit of my time at the, the South China Morning Post being able to look at Hong Kong through the prism of having having so much experience in Australian racing. Bill was probably right, and you've proved it over the last, you know, multiple decades in, in multiple jurisdictions, um, you know, at the tip of the sword. So at that time, do you recall what the betting culture was like in Australia, you know, the, the 80s and 90s and through that period? Because you probably had a unique viewpoint from, from what you were doing and seeing. Well, it was uh, it was quite exciting. I mean, uh, I'm sure that uh, I, I listened to one of your early 
podcasts with Dominic Byrne, and Dominic was the leader of the ring back in those days. We had uh, some other very exciting bookmakers and punters, uh, the likes of Mark Reed and Ray Hopkins. Uh, and it was um, a very exciting time to be in and around racing. There was uh, plenty of money involved. Of course, in those days, uh, if you wanted to have a bet, uh, your avenues were the TAB, the on-course bookmaker, uh, who was not available by phone from off-course. Uh, and uh, your third way was the SP, the illegal bookmaker, which was um, where a fair bit of money went. But a lot of that would find its way back to the race course as well. So it was a really vibrant uh, betting atmosphere in the AVs. Um, some, some great famous plungers. Uh, Mark Reed responsible for a couple of those with high signal and getting closer. And uh, it, was, um, it was a great place to be in and around racing. There was always a lot happening. And it wasn't the... Uh, trade, uh, workaday kind of atmosphere that I think has taken over to some extent. Um, uh, when they first allowed book bookmakers to take bets from off course by the phone, that started to uh, remove some of their customers uh, from the race course. The, the TAB itself, by its very nature, had started to, to um, remove some punters from the race course for the convenience of the local TAB shop and over time um, that did erode uh, crowds and once you take away the crowds and that um, that centralized point of the betting ring uh, and the race course that does take something uh, from the excitement of it and it also I know that a couple of other um, podcasts you've done people have focused on uh, the learning aspect of uh, having a vibrant race course course um, you'd be in the betting ring you'd see guys who are professional putters, putters or uh, you'd see jock um, not jockeys but trainers other professionals and uh, you'd, uh, you'd ask them questions in the betting ring why are you doing this why are you doing that you know, and uh, you'd learn and I think that learning aspect has very much been abandoned um, uh, these days, because they're such small on-course crowds, people sit at home and uh, they bet over the internet uh, and they have themselves for company. So uh, I, that's why I think that um, things like this podcast are very helpful in terms of circulating ideas. Take us back to the punter's podium that you uh, were involved with and, and what recollections do you have? What memories does that bring back? Great memories. Yeah, it's it's still something that um, uh, people uh, get in touch with me about. Uh, here we are. It's it's around 21 years since the last uh, punters podium that I did. It was part of an overall uh, promotional idea. Uh, there was new management at the Australian Jockey Club, and a new chief executive, John Rouse, and a new marketing manager, a guy called John McGee. And John McGee came up with the, the Win Big at uh, Randwick campaign. And the idea was that he was going to focus, he was a, a punter himself, and he, he wanted to focus on the idea that if you're a punter, you are much better off being at the race course. 
And uh, what we did, I, I would uh, sit, uh, stand on a stage during race meetings. I would interview jockeys. I would interview trainers. Uh, all of this would be telecast around the course. Uh, we would have uh, competitions based on uh, racing knowledge or uh, uh, racing ideas uh, for the general public. And it was just a focal point where we could talk about who's going to win the races, um, what price they are, what we think of that price, what we think is going to happen in the race. Uh, I had an offsider in uh, Tony Brassel, who people would know well from uh, Sky Channel. And uh, we, for the first uh, three or four months, that was uh, the Punders Podium, and it was a big success. It was very enthusiastically received. And then we added to it a Punders Club, and uh, the Punders Club was... Uh, basically a situation where people could buy tickets, invest their money with me. We would have a betting bank for the day. Uh, the bets would be declared uh, uh, around the course before each race and a dividend declared at the end of each day. And we happened to have a, a little bit of um, good fortune at it. Uh, that ran for about uh, five years. And I do still have people on uh, Twitter, on uh, various other avenues, who get in touch with, with me to say, are you the Alan Aiken who did the Punters Podium? And tell me what a great time they had with it. So um, there certainly was a real uh, desire for it. And I think really it's the only serious um, promotion by a race club centred around betting that I can remember. Uh, I think that that is a shame because, uh, however, um, people might think about uh, betting in racing, it is uh, the lifeblood of racing and without it, there is no racing. I've heard people say that owners are just as important as punters, but if you look at an example like South Korea, uh, in about 2003, I was surprised to learn South Korea's betting turnover was nipping at the heels of Hong Kong's. Um, and they didn't have any owners. They bought plane loads of horses from Australia. They gave them to trainers to race and people bet on that. There were no owners. And, and uh, that was the proof that uh, the most important uh, factor in, in racing is the punter. And yet it's the punter who seems to come last in considerations uh, in a place like Australia, certainly not in Hong Kong, uh, where they are a real priority for the Hong Kong Jockey Club. So I want to ask you about Hong Kong now, and we'll go back to Australia as well, but what is Hong Kong racing to you? And you've had a unique position to, to view the racing from all angles, and you know a lot of people have experience just watching a Sha Tin meeting on television. They'll potentially be lucky enough to go to a meeting there, but you in your seat, what does it mean to you at its core? Well, I think Hong Kong is, is often put up as a model for other jurisdictions, there are a lot of reasons usually why other jurisdictions could not uh, replicate Hong Kong, uh, mostly due to entrenched um, positions of uh, different sections of the industry in, um, in places like Australia or Europe or America. Uh, if you could sit down and start with a blank piece of paper and design your racing industry, I think uh, a lot of the ideas around Hong Kong would be a part of that design. Now, obviously, it's not uh, a breeding 
ground. And I think it is helped by that to some extent. We have uh, the situation where, where the racing and the betting, the uh, purest uh, aspects of the product, are the most important things. And we don't have the tail wagging the dog as you do with the breeding industries uh, having a, being a big say in a lot of jurisdictions. So I think that is an important uh, distinction between uh, Hong Kong and other places. But I think also the um, uh, contiguous um, control style of Hong Kong, um, the, the jockey club controls everything uh, from the um, uh, stabling, the staff, the um, properties where you race, the uh, people who look after tracks, um, the vets, uh, the um, betting itself, itself is looked after by the jockey club and uh, even the uh, media vision, um, the jockey club has its own media centre uh, which um, designs and sends out the pictures, uh, the coverage Everything about racing goes through the Hong Kong Jockey Club. And I think a lot of places in the world would like to have a centralised position where they can make decisions which are impactful rather than uh, making decisions which then become uh, the source of uh, fighting and splits with vested interests and uh, a real problem to get anywhere. So I think that's one of the great things about Hong Kong. Um, the, the jockey club here, here uh, has, has a, a vision about how it wants Hong Kong to be seen and perceived. It's a relatively uh, simple uh, scene to get entry if you're a, a new punter. The class system, relatively straightforward. Uh, we don't have dozens and dozens of, of different, different kinds of classes of race and uh, specialised for ages and sexes and horses, horses that haven't won two races within a certain amount of time and those kinds of uh, classifications. It's a dynamic uh, handicap system uh, which really should could allow most horses to find races. So that keeps owners happy. Trainers, for example, this is heaven. They don't chase bills. Uh, they uh, just train their, their horses, really. They get the uh, bills paid through the jockey club by the owners, who all, all must be members of the jockey club. And uh, it's the vets are provided, the staff. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's really a system where the professionals involved, they love it because they just get to do their job and not have all these uh, side issues um, you know, things like workers' compensation and those types of things, they are all organised from a central central point. And I think it's one of the keys to the success of Hong Obviously, obviously the fact that uh, they turn over an awful lot of money uh, helps um, because they can uh, pay for whatever needs to be paid for. Uh, the average race in Hong Kong uh, turns over about 20 million US dollars which is the highest in the world. Uh, in Japan, on, on big group ones, they might turn over hundreds of millions, millions of US, but their average race uh, comes down a lot because uh, it seems that Japanese punters are only really interested in the group ones. So um, Hong Kong, $20 million a race. And 
by the jockey club's own estimates, the illegal market in uh, southern China is something like three times that level. So there's an awful lot of money uh, slishing around in the world, in the world uh, betting on Hong Kong races. And I think that kind of dynamism is attractive too. Um, the racing itself, quite similar in some ways to uh, Australian racing, um, the style of it. Uh, we're on flat tracks, circle tracks, um, and it's it's more speed racing than probably what you'd see in Europe. Um, but it's uh, a terrific product, easy to digest. And the Jockey, Jockey Club vision regarding a thing like commingling is that uh, customers around the world are going to choose the product which is the best, the easiest to understand and, as I say, digest and uh, uh, gain entry to. And I, th and I think Hong Kong satisfies uh, that vision. Um, and the commingling figures certainly um, suggest that, that that is the case. It's now about 25% of turnover on uh, Hong Kong racing through the Hong Kong Jockey Club is now commingled from other countries around the world. And that's going to be in the current season around about a four billion US dollar uh, turnover figure, which is certainly not uh, chump change by anyone's standards. Do you think that's something that's going to continue on and build upon and be stronger? And, and in a day where streaming is widely available, the information sharing from Hong Kong is is very very possible. There's not a lot of things where people complain they can't get access to or easy access to necessarily. Is that something that will continue to be powerful moving ahead, do you think? Well, I'm sure it is. And you've touched on something there that uh, I know is an important point to a lot of, a lot of punters around the world. Uh, everything that they need to know about Hong Kong racing uh, is provided free. Uh, the Hong Kong Jockey Club website is a treasure trove of information. Some people even think there's too much on there. But I, my view is always that um, it's the club's uh, job to provide facts and uh, information and then it's the punter's job to sort through what they think is important or not important and it's all there on the website and I know there are uh, constant arguments discussed whatever you want to call them around the world in different jurisdictions about provision of past performances and the fact that uh, in some places those are by commercial arrangement so you know, uh, a third party is trying to make money out of providing you with the past performances for uh, racing at a at a particular track or in a particular city, uh, you also have um, distribution of uh, vision, uh, everything from um, race replays to stewards replays, uh, which again is all uh, free along with uh, track work, barrier trials, uh, everything that you can you can need as a punter, is there on the Hong Kong Jockey Club website for free. And I think uh, that's one of the more attractive things about it. During this COVID-19 shutdown of uh, racing in many places, I know there has been a big uptick in interest in Hong Kong from from punters uh, looking for somewhere to have a, have a wager, have an interest. Uh, and I, I even know that from my own site, there's been a, a real um, uh, big uptick in interest in the service. So uh, I think a lot of people having uh, exper experienced Hong Kong 
uh, I think they'll want to stick with it. That um, even when racing is is back to normal uh, around around the world, it's it's a very attractive product. Uh, there is a high emphasis on integrity, uh, on the state of the tracks. They're brilliant racetracks in in Hong Kong. Uh, we, as an example, we can have uh, uh, 10 inches of rain, 250 millimetres of rain, uh, the night before a race meeting, and race and race on a good track. Um, most places in the world, the races are off as uh, conditions. So uh, we have tracks that tracks that drain at 100 millimetres per hour, so they can keep up with even the, the very heavy rainstorms that we get here in Hong Kong from time to time. So it, it's all really um, uh, ideally tailored for the betting of, of uh, people wherever they find themselves. But obviously, it's it's been uh, a big part of uh, Hong Kong culture for a long time. There was a, there was an old line that uh, power in Hong Kong uh, resides in the the jockey club, Jardines, the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, and the governor, and in that order. Uh, during the old colonial days, uh, you know, Hong Kong has been racing since basically the, the year after it was established uh, back in the 19th century. So it uh, it has a long, long history, and I think they do it very well. From your perspective, do you get a sense that Hong Kong is missing anything, or they yearn for things in other places? Do they sit back and wonder, "Wow, I wish we had the Everest, or I wish we had the Cox Plate, or I wish we had, you know, whatever some of the Dubai meetings"? Or are they have the equivalent and better and they're very comfortable and they don't necessarily have any boxes left to tick. They just want to keep the, the dynamism um, progressing and, and essentially on the same course. Well, I think, I think the jockey club um, has found, um, well, initially one very good place in the calendar in December uh, where it really doesn't um, compete with uh, major um, carnival racing anywhere else. And uh, it even even dovetails uh, through things like the Spring Carnival Racing in Melbourne, uh, through the Japan Cup, uh, and even the Breeders' Cup. Um, it's in a, a perfect position there to not have uh, too much competition for the marquee horses, uh, the marquee jockeys. And uh, in recent years, they've developed uh, also the... Uh, QE2 Cup um, Champions Day at the end of April. And I think that also dovetails well with a lot of other places. So uh, when it comes to something like the Everest, well, certainly the Jockey Club uh, uh, has all the options. They, um, even in the midst of uh, what, uh, what's been going on in the world, the Jockey Club recently announced some big increases in prize money for next season at a time when most places are cutting back. Uh, so it isn't a lack of funding that um, the Jockey Club uh, doesn't start putting on uh, $10 million, $20 million races in US dollars. Uh, but I think the club likes to take a measured approach. Uh, it has some of the uh, biggest races in the world in their category. And I think they're quite happy to continue to develop that and uh, be a part of a, a global, global scene when it comes to the, the Group 1 races. Um, they're certainly uh, an ambitious club, but uh, 
uh, ambitious within the scope of what calendar position they already have, they already dominate, and uh, quite happy to um, uh, um, be part of the caravan, if you like. So tell me your perspective on the betting culture in Hong Kong, because it's obviously a melting pot with plenty of different people from different parts of the world there, but also a incredibly strong, nascent betting scene and betting culture. Is it similar to what you experienced in Australia? Are there things that stand out and not necessarily the framework of the, the betting structure or the pools or anything like that, but the people, the way they approach it, the way they think about it, the way they you know consume and enjoy their betting and racing? Well, I think there's... Uh, there is a fundamental difference in attitude between uh, punters in uh, Australia and Hong Kong that I noticed as soon as I arrived here. In Australia, if you found around a race where the favourite is, say, 1.4, uh, most punters in Australia are going, how can we get this beaten? What can we back to beat this? What I found in Hong Kong, they, they had uh, two uh, tote, tote betting operators in the press room and they would be mostly not working all day until there was a 1.4 favourite. And then there were queues all through the press room. The Chinese uh, punter loves to back a sure win. Uh, he's not that worried that it's only $1.40. He just wants to collect and make money. So that is a different um, perspective in this part of the world on, on betting. Um, very enthusiastic, uh, as are punters everywhere. But, of course, the numbers have always been uh, quite astounding uh, in Hong Kong, uh, even going back to the old amateur days uh, when there was um, tote betting. The professionals, the riders and the, the trainers were kind of amateur, certainly the jockeys, um, but the tote was still a big consideration. And uh, it's a, certainly more a part of uh, Asian culture, gambling. Uh, I think it has more to do with their uh, feelings about fate and uh, whether the, the gods smile on you. Um, it's fairly complex, I guess, their relationship, um, the, the Hong Kong punters uh, with punting, uh, whereas... Uh, it, it seems a simpler, simpler relationship in Australia, uh, which uh, brings you to uh, more win betting in Australia. Uh, in Hong Kong, the big pools are the Quinella and Quinella Place, and uh, more complex, um, better payoffs if you get them. But um, paradoxically, they also like to take really short odds about a sure win. So it's it's. It's a little bit different. Um, punters are a little bit different wherever you go. They have come at things a, a slightly different way, different way. But the enthusiasm for betting here has um, has never been any uh, uh, less uh, or more than it is uh, currently. Perhaps these days there are more people, people who um, bet on their phones, but even at the race course you've you find that um, uh, punters who are standing there don't go to the tote queue anymore. They bet on their phone. So um, um, the crowds have held up well over the years. I, I think the uh, the average uh, crowds at race meetings now are pretty much the same as they were when I first arrived in 2001. So uh, that that has not uh, changed, and it it 
retains a, a really good vibe, uh, particularly at Happy Valley Racecourse, um, one, of the, one of the real bucket list experiences for, for people if they do get to Hong Kong on a Wednesday night. Uh, they should get themselves to Happy Valley. Uh, it's uh, it's a unique experience there amongst all the the towers. What about the the ideas and the approaches to betting and racing? Obviously, with your analysis service and Hong Kong winning factor, you've probably done a, a lot when it comes to Hong Kong as well as your time in Australia. Are there many differences, or is it largely the same? How do you think about Australian racing and the approach versus Hong Kong? Well, in terms of um working out uh, what what they'll back. I think there are quite different approaches. Um, people here are very focused on things like jockeys and trainers and the combinations of jockeys and trainers. Uh, I've also known people who uh, concentrate on the entry system. Um, the way that horses are entered here, uh, trainers have to nominate preferences uh, and they have uh, all kinds of arcane uh, ways of denoting what their their best chances are or, or the horses that they most want to run. And I've seen um, betting ideas uh, designed around that alone with no form. Um, so I think uh, a lot of the time Australia is about um, studying the form itself and sometimes in Hong Kong it's about doing the people form uh, this this jockey only rides for this trainer uh, when, when he's going to have a winner that kind of thing um, and the personalities therefore are quite a lot bigger been out on social occasions with uh, jockeys who are riding here and they they do get treated like rock stars something that wouldn't happen uh, walking down the street in Sydney, a jockey being stopped for autographs and that kind of thing. So uh, the there is a different culture uh, about racing. Um, I once likened it to you know if you uh, if you're keen on basketball, you'd want to go and concentrate on the NBA, but if you're keen on racing, you want to be concentrating on Hong Kong. Um, it's it's that kind of um, difference, I think. Have you seen that on the betting syndicate side as well with a lot of people being attracted to and coming to Hong Kong and coming in and out or do they, they stay for the long haul? How do they think about, especially on the betting side when they want to try and make money, uh, the Hong Kong betting market? Is, a, is it a long-term thing often or are people willing to come in for a season or a couple of seasons and try their best and, and see how they go and then potentially just leave? I think uh, in terms of um, the uh, professional players, um, certainly when I arrived here, the professionals were all living here. In fact, you, you needed to live here to bet um, for, for various um, reasons. Uh, these days, days, I think there, well, of course, we have comminglings. So uh, there are a lot of people who bet professionally on Hong Kong and don't ever need to set foot in the place. Um, so how many bet professionally in Hong Kong, I really couldn't tell you. Um, but I'm aware of, of quite a few uh, syndicates, uh, and they these days often operate from overseas. Um, and you contrast that with uh, you still have uh, your punting owners 
once upon a time that that was the the guiding principle for owners in Hong Kong that they they bought horses with a view to well uh, we get this ready to have a bet and um, when today's the day we get the cost of the horse back we get some profit and we have a lot of fun that probably changed over the last 20 23 years since the handover uh, these days the biggest owners here are extremely wealthy people uh, who certainly don't need to have a bet uh, and they do it for face the um, the Chinese concept of of prestige uh, they bring their like to bring their friends out to the races and buy a couple of tables and have lunch and appear in the winning photo uh, and um, that aspect of it has changed in the last 20 years the the idea of the punting owner um, these days I think really the punters are, are the the man on the street and the big professionals and and there's no way that the big professionals are bigger or better than Hong Kong Kong is there a, a topic that will be focused on for Hong Kong moving ahead especially on the betting side because I think about even 10 years ago from today what the Australian scene was like for example and, and the betting scene there and how much it's changed and progressed or, or whatever the the right word is is Hong Kong does is there anything that's a hyper focus moving ahead looking forward or is it the framework's pretty strong it'll just be solidifying that and I think you talked about commingling before but are there any things that stand out that you think they'll focus on that we can keep an eye on over the next five seven ten years well I think the biggest uh, thing that the jockey club club uh, has on its plate regarding betting is commingling. The second biggest is, is terribly unsexy, but the club is uh, currently investing billions in upgrading its uh, actual bet betting infrastructure, its hardware, um, which, as I say, not a very sexy topic to talk about, but important all the same. Uh, but I think the idea for the club is to keep expanding its uh, commingling. Um, it went through a period between 1997 and 2006 where there was a, a drop-off in turnover. It fell by about a third. Uh, the club then renegotiated its tax conditions with the government uh, to give it uh, more control over uh, how its product was handled, and that included uh, the... Uh, adding of rebates uh, and since that time it has been um, on the way up not every year with there have been a couple of bumps in the road the uh, global financial crisis uh, was a downturn year uh, and this year is probably going to be down a couple of percent uh, as well but by and large that was a very successful change and I think that reinforcement of that is um, what the club will be doing uh, going forward. Of course, they recently, or two years ago, opened the uh, training centre in China, Chungfa, and have already had one race meeting on it. Uh, the second race meeting there was called off um, due to uh, the issues this season, the uh, uh, protests and, and then coronavirus. Uh, Chungfa is a, a possible uh, future factor for the club. Uh, and China in, gen in general, but China is uh, a very long way from uh, having a proper horse, horse racing. And I, I think w when it does, it may well be at 
Chungfa uh, and under the aegis of the Jockey Club. But that is a, a, um, that's a question without really an answer, China. Um, it, it's very much a case of um, one day in the future, but nobody knows when. Um, um, Chungfa was a, was a necessary uh, addition to the club's tra training facilities, uh, but also it's a footprint in China. Uh, it's about an hour out of Guangzhou and it can be used for racing uh, and perhaps one day we'll have uh, meetings at uh, Chungfa with betting conducted through uh, Hong Kong and the commingling. There was no betting on the only meeting that had there, um, but uh, that possibility certainly exists some way off in the future. And um, uh, China, China, I guess, is the, the El Dorado and there's no uh, place better positioned to um, take advantage of that if it happens uh, than Hong Kong. But I really think that it's one of, it's one of those things that um, may not happen in, in my lifetime and um, probably won't happen in my lifetime and may not happen for a very long time. Tell me about journalism a little bit more and when you mentor young journalists today, what do you tell them to focus on or you know, what's the outlook for those looking at getting into the racing and especially the racing and betting industry or the betting game? Well, I think it's, it's pretty forlorn, the, um, the game of racing journalism. Uh, I see this week, in fact, uh, we're speaking in late June here, uh, I see that a lot of uh, racing writers in Australia have um, uh, come to the end of their the line with uh, News Limited. In uh, nine, 1979, there were probably 50 racing journalists in Sydney, 50 in Melbourne, uh, um, and many scattered throughout the country, uh, areas of New South Wales, or the other major cities. Uh, there was quite a big population of racing journalists. I think you'd struggle to... 50 together these days. Um, it's it's quite forlorn. The coverage of racing in Australia is bought and paid for by the racing authorities. Uh, it doesn't really allow for any constructive journalism. I think it's a little bit uh, better in Hong Kong. Um, the Jockey Jockey Club here doesn't like criticism, but uh, does realise that uh, if there's something to be criticised, they really have, really have to... Um, take it on board, see if they think it's valid and, and do something about it or ignore it. But at least there is some uh, avenue for, uh, for um, criticism. Um, and uh, where, where I've focused when I've brought uh, younger journalists into Hong Kong to work under me at the South China Morning Post was, um, I guess, along the lines of, of Bill Whitakers. You know, understand the form, understand uh, how all the pieces of this uh, great game fit together uh, and don't just um, report what you're told, don't just um, come up with the, the same uh, thoughts as everybody else. And uh, I think I think that um, most, probably all the guys I've, I've hired uh, over the years, years to come here have taken that approach and, and done a good job with it. If and when you decide to, to kick the feet up and relax a little bit, uh, looking back on Australia, Hong Kong, your career, what will you look back with the most fondness and, and, and smile about or laugh about over all the years you've been involved in the game? Well, the 
been some interesting times, uh, some fun times. Some, some. Uh, I've had the odd excellent win on the punt, um, but I, I certainly did enjoy doing the uh, putters podium. I got a good kick kick out of that at the time, uh, and uh, I would I would always look back on that fondly. Um, and uh, some of the stuff uh, that I that I wrote in Australia, uh, particularly, um, I, en- I enjoyed immensely. But it's uh, it's a game that um, I guess faces a a challenge long term. That uh, every day goes by, we are further from the time when everybody owned horses a hundred years ago or 120 years ago and further from the place where people uh, understood what uh, racing was about. And I think uh, there's a tendency now for a lot of people in the community to uh, look at um, horse racing in a different light and uh, without the same understanding of horses as work animals uh, or as um, uh, sport animals. And I think you know, that's a shame, but it's uh, you know that's that's the world. The world gets the world gets older, and we move away from it constantly. Uh, I think the sport itself is uh, certainly no different to what it was um, in a lot of ways uh, when I first got involved. Um, but whether people appreciate it the same way uh, nowadays certainly open to question and the fact that uh, as i said that racing riders are a vanishing breed uh, i don't think that helps because to some extent they they do have a job to um, help people to appreciate it um, but in in terms of um, the future for me I, I you know i think hong kong is uh, fantastic and going ahead i think there are a few issues at work in Australian racing with, uh, with some fundamental things, tracks, integrity, uh, the general funding of it. Uh, so I think it has a lot of challenges ahead. Um, not going to worry me. I'll, I'll be, be in, I think they'll bury me in Hong Kong, which is what most people say when they come to Hong Kong to live. Um, it's a place that, that does grab you and uh, you just want to stay. It'd be remiss of me not to ask. Do you have a a horse that stands out over the years, a moment or a memory that you uh, that you want to share at the very end here? A horse that stands out over the years. There are so many. Um, I was I was uh, there for the entire career of Kingston Town in Australia, which I thought was pretty special. Uh, one of my favourite horses ever was Vo Rogue in the late 1980s. Fantastic uh, character, the horse. The jockey and and the trainer. Um, um, he was a, he was a fantastic story. Um, the great horses um, they do attract you, but they're also the you know the, the, the great triers. When I first started going to the races in in Sydney, there was a horse called Our Roni, who was one of the more famous horses in Sydney. Although she never won a race in well over a hundred starts. And her trainer often ran her against Kingston Town. She was eligible for maidens, but he ran her in group races because Kingston Town would scare off the opposition. There'd be five runners, including our Roni, so hmm. she, she'd get the prize money for fourth or fifth. Um, it was a 
was a strange one, but um, and there have been some some great uh, racing stories. Uh, uh, I was at the races the day of Fine Cotton. I still very much remember um, the goings on that day, uh, and how there were a lot of very nervous people before the race, and uh, a lot of very loud people after the race, calling out that something was wrong. <laughs> That was and that was at Warwick Farm in Sydney. I can't imagine what it was like in Brisbane. Uh, no, some some great memories of uh, great stories and and great horses, um, but they continue. Those horses, um, you know, great horses continue. Um, certainly not sure that I'll be seeing any more like uh, Black Caviar or Winks or uh, in the near future. But uh, they don't come along very often. I feel privileged to have seen the. the the great ones that I've seen. People can find you at Hong Kong Winning Factor or HKWinningFactor.com. Alan, it's been a pleasure chatting. We could have done hours and, and hours and go through all the different things. It's it's very kind of you to give some of your time to chat through some of the things uh, from your decades-long experience in Australia and Hong Kong. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure, Jake. You're doing a great job uh, with these. Um, I listen to every one of them and keep up the good work. 